Welcome to Series 2 of the Soul Wonder Strategist, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics and international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by BAE Systems Australia. Hello and welcome to Saltwater Strategists, Episode 8 of Series 2. I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, one of the Australian Naval Institute's counsellors, and it's great to be with you today on the Saltwater Strategists podcast. Today we're flipping the mic around and I'll be interviewing our usual host, Jen Parker, who will be joined today by the former President of the Australian Naval Institute, Vice Admiral Peter Jones. Now, Jen and Peter have recently published an occasional paper with the Australian Naval Institute entitled Australian Naval Capabilities in the Littoral past, present and future, and the paper's available on the ANI's website. For those of our listeners who may not know Peter and Jen, some quick introductions. First of all, Peter Jones served in the Royal Australian Navy for 40 years and retired in the rank of Vice Admiral. During his seagoing career, Peter commanded the frigate HMAS Melbourne and later the multinational interception force in the Arabian Gulf during the 2003 Iraq War. Peter's senior shore appointments included as Commander Australian Naval Systems Command and within Defence, the head of the ICT operations and finally Chief of the Capability Group. Peter is the, until very recently, uh, President of the Australian Naval Institute and is an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. He's also the author of Australia's Argonauts and most recently, Guy Griffiths, The Life and Times of an Australian Admiral. Second, Jen Parker, whom you, our listeners, will be very familiar with, has spent over 20 years at the Royal Australian Navy as both a warfare officer and has served in numerous sea and shore appointments. Her last appointment with the RAN was as Director of Operations of the Combined Maritime Forces, resident within the US Fifth Fleet in the Middle East. Jen is an expert associate with the National Security College out at ANU and an adjunct fellow at the University of New South Wales. She's also a counsellor with the Australian Naval Institute and Jen has also authored a number of publications on maritime and defence related issues. Jen and Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. Well, Jen, I might start with you, and before we get into it, it might be best for uh, our listeners to lay a bit of the groundwork and talk about exactly what is the littoral, and can you also explain for us while you're at it, what are littoral operations, and why does this whole littoral thing matter? Yeah, look, absolutely, Rob. I guess in terms of why does the littoral matter, well, when you look at the statistics, the majority of the 193 United Nations member countries are in fact coastal states, and at least 70% of the global population live within 150 kilometres of the coast. So when you look specifically at the Indo-Pacific region, you look at Australia, you look at Southeast Asia and our Pacific neighbours, it becomes really clear why the littoral is important, with the majority of the populations in the region living within the coast. 
Not only does the population density data highlight that our region is one where littorals matter, but the physical geography of Australia's north also makes this plainly evident. So if you needed to operate to the north of Australia for whatever region, clearly you'd be operating in the littorals. In terms of what is the littoral region, it would be fantastic to be able to roll out a really simple definition that would make it clear and say it is anything up to 100 nautical miles from the coast or 50 nautical miles from the coast or something like that. But it's something that most mariners inherently have a sense of but can't always clearly define. So I guess in terms of starting with a few definitions, the US Department of Defence defines the littoral as two segments of the battle space, the seaward, which is the area from the open ocean to the shore, which must be controlled to support operations ashore, and the landward, which is the area inland from the shore that can be supported and defended directly from the sea. Now, the REN also has a definition in its Australian Maritime Doctrine, and it's a definition that I prefer, and it talks about the littoral as the areas to seaward of the coast which are susceptible to influence or support from the land, and the areas inland from the coast which are susceptible to the influence or support from the sea. So really, when you think about it, it's not a clearly defined geographical area in terms of the littorals. It is the extent to which seaborne operations can be influenced from land, and land-based operations can be influenced from the sea. And that is a range of areas in terms of the littoral that is dramatically changing when you think about the increased ranges of anti-ship cruise missiles, the increased ranges of uncrewed aerial vehicles and uncrewed surface vehicles. So it's an area of operations that is expanding and it's all about the influence from sea to shore and shore to sea. So it's about a lot more, it would seem, than just traditionally what people might think of in terms of amphibious operations. And I guess looking at that, Thinking back to Federation, Peter, for you specifically, and thinking about the subsequent founding of the RAN, would you say that the original RAN fleet was in fact designed for littoral operations? So the short answer is yes. In the early years of Federation, the Navy, then known as the Commonwealth Naval Force, was a mixture of the remnants from the, the different colonial navies, like the Queensland Navy, the South Australian Navy, and so on and new but small torpedo boat destroyers. The original concept for the new Australian Navy was to be confined to defensive operations in local waters, with the British Royal Navy providing Australia's blue water or open ocean defence. This Commonwealth Naval Force literal focus took a dramatic shift at the 1909 Imperial Defence Conference. Britain proposed that Australia and other dominions wholly or in part fund and operate fleet units on different overseas stations. Each fleet unit was a squadron led by a, a battle cruiser and composed of cruisers, destroyers and submarines. And they would be employed for national and imperial defence and in particular ensure the flow of trade was unmolested by enemy commerce raiders. And in November 1909, the Deakin government accepted the proposal and in so doing, took a greater defence responsibility for the nation. So it was going to be both oceanic and coastal defence. This new fleet, led by the battlecruiser Australia, arrived in Sydney in 1913. It had to be able to not only protect our coast, but also operate in the expansive distances of the South Pacific and the eastern Indian Ocean and in the littoral waters to our north. 
So, Peter, with the squadron arriving in 1913, of course, by 1914, we're into World War I, the Great War, and the RAN is starting to be employed for exactly these various roles. Can you talk us a bit through the RAN's first experiences in terms of littoral warfare? And in particular, were there any lessons that we took away from those experiences? Yes, yeah, certainly. So at the outset of World War One, Australia's greatest threat actually was a naval one. It came from the German Asiatic Squadron, commanded by Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spey, which was based in Tsingtao in China. This powerful cruiser force could not only disrupt our trade, but also could impede sending Australian troops to Europe and could even bombard Australian coastal cities. The now renamed Royal Australian Navy was, however, well-placed to counter that German threat with its modern fleet centred on the battlecruiser HMS Australia. And indeed, von Spanier elected not to come to Australian waters because of the existence of the Australia. So the first action was not on the open ocean. It was to occupy Germany's southwest Pacific possessions and nullify their use by Germany in the war. The Australian fleet, under the command of the British Rear Admiral George Patey, with the assistance of British and French warships, first supported the New Zealand occupation of German Samoa in August 1914, and then Australian sailors and soldiers landed at Bitu Parker in near Rabaul the following month. The RAN lost the 78AE1 off Rabaul, but these operations were ultimately successful in their achieving their aims. Operations, though, were pretty rudimentary. Intelligence about German forces and their intent was lacking. Transferring troops ashore was done in ships' boats, and the troops themselves were unfamiliar with ship operations. This was just the first of a series of actions in the littoral. Others were the the famous Sydney-Emden battle at Cocos Island, the involvement of submarine A2 and the shore logistics party known as the bridging train in the Dardanelles campaign, and the old cruiser Pioneer off the east coast to help contain the German cruiser Konigsberg. Yeah, Jen, one of the points I noted in the paper that you and Peter have published, and indeed following on from Peter's comments just now, was actually the sheer breadth of many of the littoral operations the RAN has been engaged in. And it's going to your point, really, I suppose, about how you conceptualise the littoral. Do you have some thoughts about the breadth of that history? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. In fact, I thought of myself as a a little bit of a naval historian, but uh, when I started working with Peter, I realised I am not a naval historian. Jen, I should tell you that there are many of us who have that experience. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Look, working through this paper with Peter, I was quite surprised at the breadth of the operations the RAN has conducted that we would consider littoral operations. And if we go back to that key definition of littoral, which is, you know, the area of sea that can be influenced from the land and the area of land that can be influenced from the sea, then actually there is a full spectrum there. And it's quite surprising because Traditionally, and Peter might scoff at this because I'm sure he doesn't view it that way, but traditionally, from an RAM perspective, when we talk about littoral operations, we tend to talk about amphibious operations, and we have a long history of amphibious operations, and we have a lot of amphibious capability. And in fact, when you read our Australian Maritime Doctrine from 2010, it really does couch littoral in that amphibiosity context. So I guess, you know, one of the fascinating bits of history that I found was the REN bridging team, for example, which um, Peter writes so eloquently about in our paper. And, you know, serving at Gallipoli, 
On the 7th of August 1915, we had the first Aryan Bridger team land under fire at Suvla Bay. Their first task was construct a pontoon pier to enable supplies and reinforcements to be brought quickly ashore. You know, another example was the system of coast watchers. You know, there's some fantastic books talking about the history of RAN coast watchers who operated to our north and provided that early warning and that reconnaissance. And, you know, those are key littoral operations for the RAN. And then you only need to think about, you know, the Tobruk Ferry Service, which has been written about fairly eloquently as well by Peter in the paper. Well, you think about the, I think it's 139 ships that served in the Tobruk's Ferry Service during World War II, transporting over 34,000 tonnes of stores, tanks and guns, uh, moving 33,000 troops under fire and under pressure. So I guess one of the, the key takeaways for me from looking at that history of the RAN is when we think about littoral operations, it is not just about amphibiosity. That is important, of course, and that's something that comes out in the recent Defence Strategic Review, the requirements to have an effective littoral manoeuvre capability supported by the Army, but it is much more than that. It is those operations conducted at sea or ashore that are influenced by the other domain, and that is an area that is dramatically expanding, as I mentioned before, as we have a greater reach of weaponry. You look about the increased range of anti-ship cruise missiles, you look at the increased range of uncrewed aerial vehicles. And it's important to think about these operations as littoral operations because there are additional challenges, certain capabilities can be constrained, radars, sonars, sensors can be impacted. So we need to think about them as part of that history of littoral operations and understand them in that context. And June, I think we'll need to come back to some of those modern technologies. They sound like they're quite a fascinating topic. So I might uh, reserve the right to come back to you on those. But before we get too much further, Peter, for you, noting what Jen's just said about, for example, the Coast Watchers and the and the Tobruk Ferry Service, etc. Thinking about World War Two, what was the REN's experience of littoral operations during that conflict? And and again, are there lessons that resonate for today's Navy from World War Two? There certainly are, and I think as Jen has alluded to, you could devote an entire podcast just to looking at the Navy's role in the littoral during World War II, and most of the Navy's successes and losses were were in the littoral during that conflict. But I think it's worth just, if I concentrate on two aspects that are most relevant to the Navy today, the first is just about the importance of interoperability, not only between navies, but also with different land and air forces operating in that that same theatre of operations. For the Australian Navy, the war in the Pacific was almost entirely conducted in the littoral and in support of land forces. The initial operations were pretty ill-fated and ill-starred. In the Guadalcanal campaign, the Battle of Savo Island was disastrous with three US cruisers and the RN heavy cruiser Canberra being lost when protecting the amphibious force. The defeat highlighted deficiencies in RAN and USN interoperability and poor command arrangements in the RAN flagship. From that nadir, the Australian squadron adopted many US procedures and equipment. For example, the Commodore commanding the squadron expanded his staff so it was much more able to thoroughly plan and execute operations. The ships themselves were fitted with additional systems and weapons 
The U.S. talk between ships, communication sets, replaced flags and flashing light as the primary means to coordinate movements. The increased lethality of aircraft in the littoral could only be countered by a combination of timely intelligence, well-performing radars, development of a common air picture, and a layered defence of fighters, high-angle guns, and sufficient and smaller guns with sufficient stopping power. By 1944, our ships were fully interchangeable with any US Seven Fleet formation. And I've said elsewhere that uh, that uh, big change and that improvement in interoperability is probably one of the Aryan's greatest achievements in its history. My second point is about the creation of a, a modest amphibious fleet that was centred on three converted passenger ships, Canimbla, Menorah, and Westraya into infantry landing ships. These conversions were extensive in their nature and they are really well thought out. Each ship was able to embark 1,200 troops and about 18 landing craft. A factor in why these ships were so successful in service was the creation of a ship's army detachment, or SAD, in each ship and the considerable work that was done on the internal organisation of the ship. The officer in charge of the SAD played an important role in liaison with the embarked forces, and the ships had to adjust their procedures, whether they were embarking Australian Army, US Army, or US Marine Corps contingents. These ships referred to themselves collectively as the Three Musketeers, and the Commodore commanding the Australian Squadron, Commodore John Collins, later wrote, I was, of course, aware of the plans for the landing ships, at each point of the invasion and saw from bridging my flagship the spectacular execution of their orders. What I did not, indeed could not see, however, was the vast amount of preparatory training and drill which the LSIs had to undergo before they could accomplish their task. The complete success of the mission proves the thoroughness of their preparations and training and the split-minute timing that was undertaken on board. And so it's that piece that is so often not seen about the internal efficiency and competence of individual ships and how they execute their mission. And so you can see the origin of many aspects of today's three musketeers, Adelaide, Canberra and Shules, in that pioneering work of Knimbla, Nora and Australia. Peter, I'm just going to do a bit of shameless cross-promotion first, then I'm going to ask you about some of the more littoral operations, and that shameless cross-promotion is just to let our listeners know that there are many podcasts in the Naval Studies Group podcast series that deal with a number of these different battles and topics. But moving on from that, Peter, what about some of the more recent littoral operations the Navy's had since World War II? Well, since really the the end of the Cold War, well, to take that point, the, the Navy's been involved in a number of littoral operations, such as in the Solomons, East Timor, and the Arabian Gulf. But probably more usefully, if I just concentrate on our longest overseas commitment over 15 years, and that was our successive deployments to the Arabian Gulf following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Now, these operations highlighted issues which seem to transcend time and space. The first is situation awareness. The littoral is a complex environment, quite typically. The number of contacts to detect, to track, and most importantly, identify can be overwhelming. This is asset-intensive to do and to maintain 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Likewise, learning the patterns of movement on the various 
aircraft and, and ships and people in that area. This takes time to comprehend and to understand. Second, like we've mentioned, operating in the littoral is demanding on people and equipment. And in the Gulf, as the example, neither people or equipment like operating in temperatures in the high 40s or in a dust storm. Yet they must be comfortable operating in that environment to succeed. Third, and that common thread of interoperability with allies and partners in all dimensions is key to success. Besides a common market control system, extensive use of liaison officers is needed to reduce friction and facilitate a synchronisation of effort. And finally, every theatre and every mission has its own challenges. Forces need time in theatre to acclimatise and identify what new doctrine and what new tactics are needed to succeed in their specific mission. Jen, Peter's given us a wonderful distillation of the RN's littoral warfare experience to date. So can I ask you then, moving to the present day, what are some of the key concepts that are really animating the discussions about littoral warfare now? Yeah, thanks so much. We've mentioned a few times through this podcast, when you think about Australia's maritime doctrine, which is, you know, probably the only unclassified document that tells you how the RAN is thinking about littoral operations, it does couch them in the concept of amphibious warfare. I would note there is an update to Australian maritime doctrine that is being published. If I ever finish my chapter, one day it will actually get published. But I guess so it talks about concepts such as littoral manoeuvre. So littoral manoeuvre, Australian maritime doctrine will talk about it as the use of the littoral as an operational manoeuvre space from which a sea-based joint amphibious force can threaten or apply and sustain force ashore. From an army perspective, army tend to talk about it as the use of the littoral to achieve positional advantage to influence the maritime domain from the land, as well as projecting sustaining force ashore. And it's a concept that had renewed vigour this year, as it features pretty heavily in the Defence Strategic Review, released for Australia in April this year. And a lot of the capabilities that come out of the Defence Strategic Review, notably the acceleration of Army's amphibious craft, the littoral manoeuvre capability, and also arguably their uh, HIMARS missile capability, is all about positioning the Australian Army to achieve littoral manoeuvre in areas to our north, if necessary. Other concepts that come out is the idea of the ship-to-objective manoeuvre, which is about projecting combined arms forces by air and surface directly to critical operational objectives and dislocating adversaries in space and time. So that is really that true amphibiosity concept. Distributed manoeuvre, which has kind of evolved to the concept of distributed lethality, has also gained renewed vigour. Distributed manoeuvre talks about discrete tactical activities in separate, possibly non-contiguous locations, throughout the operations area. And it's effectively having a force that can be dispersed to achieve a greater effect. There's the concept of sea basing, which is about basing certain land force functions aboard a ship, which decreases the shore-based presence. And something that was in fact very effectively used by the US during the tanker wars, where they created ships for sea basing aircraft, so helicopters at sea, in order to be able to achieve an effect at sea but on shore without uh, exposing the vulnerability of their people ashore. 
Of course, land strike, a concept which is also a littoral concept that's gained renewed vigour, certainly in REN context as the REN uh, looks to move towards the acquisition of uh, the Tomahawk capability, about a a 1,500-kilometre range and the ability to put missiles from sea to shore at that range will fundamentally change how we think about some of those littoral operations. But the US has really taken the concept of sea basing and also evolved that into the idea of expeditionally advanced base operations, which is a concept the US Marine Corps talks about, which is a form of expeditionary warfare, effectively, that involves employment of mobile or low signature, operationally relevant, and fairly easy to maintain, sustain naval expeditionary forces from a series of austere temporary locations, whether that be at sea or ashore. And then another one that really bears interest in thinking about is this concept that the US is using the term of littoral operations in a contested environment. When we think about littoral operations, because historically, certainly in recent history, the RN has thought about it in the context of amphibiosity, we've often not thought about it in that contested environment. But as we mentioned before, some of the capabilities that are coming online, but also really the changes in the region and the geopolitical circumstances, really need us to start to think about how do we conduct these operations in that contested environment. So Torah operations in a contested environment is a concept that describes the integration and application of Navy and Army capabilities, or in the US case, Marine Corps capabilities, to overcome emerging threats within littoral that are rapidly expanding in operational depth and lethality. So it's a really expecting that if you are doing littoral operations, you're going to be doing that in a contested environment. Today, we see that now with US ships and, in fact, French ships operating uh, with the Combined Maritime Forces in the Red Sea, having to do that and deal with UAVs, missiles being launched by Houthis in Yemen. And we also see that bearing itself out in the Ukraine war, where the maritime elements of that have been predominantly littoral, And we've seen the use of new technologies and new capabilities, certainly through uncrewed surface vessels, changing the nature of littoral operations. So there's some of the key concepts that are currently used in some of the discourse. And I would also flag that the concept of anti-access area denial, which is often talked about in terms of the People's Republic of China's strategy for the first island chain, but also talked about in the Australian Defence Strategic Review. I would argue that the elements of that that talks about area denial is really a littoral concept. So Once the forces are within range of the coast or certain strategic objectives, being able to limit their manoeuvrability through the employment of some of those capabilities I've talked about is really a a littoral concept in itself. So, Peter, thinking about this quite diverse and very interlinked set of factors and concepts that Jen's just been discussing, how do current RAN capabilities stack up in the littoral, do you think? Look, I think pretty well. And I would say it's probably better than many days. I think operating in the littoral is in the DNA of the REN now. And it's very comfortable operating close inshore when it has to. Usefully, the mainstay of the surface combatant force, the ANZACs, have proven themselves time and again to be outstanding littoral ships. And they've been enhanced greatly by the retrofitting of the CA phased array radar suite and the Seahawk Romeo helicopter. The challenge as set, however, is the immersion in the Pacific littoral theatre. 
and to understand the environment, the relationships that need to be built and nurtured, the doctrine, the tactics and the equipment that needs to be tailored for a specific operation. So, Jen, to return to something you said earlier and to build on what Peter's just said, given where the Aryans' current capabilities stack up in the Littoral, what about the capabilities that are coming online in the not-too-distant future for the Navy and how are they going to stack up in the Littoral? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, we're recording this podcast in December 23 and and to some extent until the Australian Surface Combatant Fleet Review decision drops, which is expected in early 24, it's actually hard to say what the future of the RAN fleet structure looks like and therefore how some of it stacks up in the littoral. But I guess if we go back to that concept I was talking about before that the US uses the term of littoral operations in a contested environment, and we think about moving into the future that most of our littoral operations will be in that sort of environment, then we need to be able to produce vessels that are survivable and able to defend themselves. So from a constabulary operations perspective, obviously the RN has been working through replacing the Armadale class with the Cape class, which have been highly effective in constabulary operations. But I think there is a question in terms of if we're moving towards a contested environment where uncrewed surface vessels increase proliferation of missile systems by state and non-state actors, as we're seeing in the Red Sea at the moment, then we need to be looking at how we design these capabilities to have the armament to be able to defend themselves. And I guess one of the capabilities coming online in that kind of realm of constabulary operations, but also the original 2009 white paper when it talked about the offshore patrol vessels, talked about the use of them for littoral warfare, then we need to look at the armament and the survivability of the 12 Arafura-class vessels that Australia is bringing online. Obviously, Australia is yet to commission an Arafura-class vessel, but there certainly are two in the water undergoing sea trials. And I think that that is one probably going to be one of the key questions of the Surface Combatant Fleet Review as government considers the recommendations from the review team, which is how do these offshore patrol vessels, about 1,600 tonnes, a crew of about 40 people, stack up when they are under threat and under fire? If you think back to around the time of the 2009-2016 white papers that were really the genesis for these vessels, that was a time where we were thinking about, and not just the Australian Navy, many navies, you know, the US Navy were moving towards their littoral combat ships, and we were thinking about the greatest threat in the littoral actually being the small boat threat, you know, the IRGCN threat and those lessons from the Gulf. Now we need to be thinking about how these capabilities, the Arafura, can deal with uncrewed surface vessels that have either weapons on them or explosive on them and missiles. And so I think that there is a real challenge there. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the review in terms of how you might armour those capabilities or look to replace them. I think the other challenge in terms of how our capabilities stack up in the littoral is the armament on our amphibious capabilities, so that being obviously LHDs, Adelaide and Canberra, and also Chules. And I think there's a real question there in terms of whether that armament does need to be improved. I note that there has been the rollout of the closing weapon system onto those capabilities, but also what else do we need to provide those capabilities to become more survivable in a contested environment? Yeah, Jen, thinking about the current state of the conceptual debate, which you talked about not too long ago, and also these new capabilities coming online, 
So looking to the next decade or so, what are some of the likely emerging trends in the toll operations, do you think? Look, I've mentioned them a few times during this, but I think one of the key trends is obviously uncrewed surface vessels and how they might change the littoral environment. And we've certainly gotten a taste of that in terms of what has been happening in the Black Sea and the effective use of uncrewed surface vessels by Ukraine to hold much larger ships at risk. And so that is certainly one of the emerging trends. Also, I think I mentioned before the increased proliferation of land-based anti-ship cruise missiles, you know, a capability that Australia itself is actually acquiring, and the increased range of those capabilities. When you talk about other trends in the littoral, you also note that uh, Australia itself is looking to explore the use of uncrewed underwater vessels and uncrewed surface vessels. So there's been a, a number of trials by the Royal Australian Navy using things like the Blue Bottle USVs for intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. The former HMAS Maitland, in fact, reportedly anyway, turned into a remote and autonomous vessel. And Australia's been trialling the uh, underwater vessel, the, the Ghost Shark. So certainly those are the trends that will dictate what is happening in the littoral. So, Peter and Jen, we're almost at time now. So can I ask you if you have any final comments on this particular topic? And also, what are you going to work on in the next year or so that might relate to this issue? Might start with you, Peter. Yeah, so I hope we've shown that littoral operations brings their own unique challenges. But so often conflicts are conducted and settled in the littoral and therefore navies must be adept at operating in that environment. As mentioned, however, when the Ariane fleet arrived in Sydney in 1913, the navy had to be able to do both littoral operations and also oceanic operations. And in respect to the latter, it can't be forgotten that Australia is the fifth biggest user of merchant shipping in the world. And so it, the navy has to be able to play its part in protecting the nation's vital sea trade over oceans and in the coastal area. So an interesting question. So after writing and talking about littoral operations in 2024, Jen and I will look to explore the topic of the REN and oceanic operations. That to me sounds like it's a good podcast for series three. Jen, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, Peter is obviously a, a very hard act to follow, but I guess I'd offer a few observations, just kind of reiterate some points that have come up through the podcast. The first one is that although there is a huge focus on littoral manoeuvre in the Defence Strategic Review, and that is an incredibly important capability that needs to be delivered by the ADF, littoral operations, as we've mentioned a few times, are much broader than just amphibiosity when you think about that definition of the littoral. And it's important to think about it because the increased threats in the littoral mean that in the design of vessels, the design of concepts, the design of doctrine, you need to think about the survivability and the offensive capability of those vessels. And you only need to look to what's happened in the Black Sea or what's happening in the Red Sea right now to understand how exposed capabilities can be when operating the littoral. But as Peter mentions, I think it's important to note that the littoral operations is only one part of the tasks that a Navy needs to deliver. And given the size of Australia and the location of Australia, the Blue Water Navy component or the Oceanic Navy component 
is as important an element as littoral operations. We have lengthy sea lines of communications that extend well into the Indian Ocean and beyond, and we do need to have the ability to be able to defend those too, which means uh, quite a complex task for those that are designing or considering the recommendations of the Surface Combatant Fleet Review. Moving away from littoral operations, I would just like to say thank you to everybody who has participated in Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategist. This podcast will wrap us up for 2023, but we look forward to coming back in 2024. Keep an eye out in late January with a new and refreshed series looking at a number of the issues within the region. Thanks, Jen. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for today and indeed for 2023. So Peter and Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your recent uh, paper, which I uh, will just note again is available on the Australian Naval Institute website. And that paper deals with Australian naval capabilities in the littoral past, present and into the future. Thank you all for your time today. Thanks, Rob. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our sponsor, BAE Systems Australia, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely, important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.